Chapter 10 of The Merry-Go-Round. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Elizabeth Peterson. The Merry-Go-Round by W. Somerset Malm. Section 23. The summer passed, and Miss Lay went her way as usual, going industriously with the vivacity of a young girl to the various entertainments offered by the season. She had a knack for extracting amusement from functions which others found entirely tedious, and with sprightly, good-natured malice related her adventures conscientiously to the faithful Frank. He, of course, remained in London, but once a fortnight went to see Herbert Field at Turkenbury. His visits, though himself knew they were useless, were of singular consolation to the deanery household. His kindly humor and his sympathy had so endeared him that all looked forward with the keenest pleasure to his arrival, and he had a way of arousing confidence that even Bella felt nothing more could be done for her husband than Frank did. On reaching home from Paris, they had settled down very quietly, and though at first the dean felt some uneasiness in Herbert's presence, this was soon replaced by very touching affection. He learned to admire the unflinching spirit with which the youth looked forward to inevitable death, the courage with which he bore pain. When the weather grew warmer, Herbert lay all day in the garden, rejoicing in the green leaves and the flowers and the singing of the birds. And forsaking his erudite studies, the dean sat with him, talking of ancient authors or of the roses he loved so well. They played chess intermittently, and Bella loved to watch them, the sun broken into patches of green and yellow by the leaves colored them softly. It amused her to see the little smile of triumph with which her father looked up when he had made a move to puzzle his opponent, and the boyish laugh of Herbert when he found a way out of the difficulty. They both seemed her children, and she could not tell which was dearer to her. But cruelly the disease progressed, and at length Herbert was confined to bed. A terrible hemorrhage exhausted him, so that Frank could not conceal from Bella his fear that at length the end was coming. For months, He's been hanging on a thread, and the thread is breaking. I'm afraid you must prepare yourself for the worst. Do you mean it can only be a question of weeks? She asked with agony. He hesitated for a while, but decided it was better to tell her the truth. I think it's only a question of days. She looked at him steadily, but her face by now was so strained to self-command that no expression of horror or of pain disturbed its steadfast gravity. Can nothing be done at all? She asked. Nothing. I can be of no more use to you, but if it will comfort you at all, you'd better wire for me if it has another hemorrhage. It will be the last? Yes. When she went back to Herbert, he smiled so brightly that it seemed impossible Frank's gloomy judgment could be true. Well, what does he say? He says that you keep your strength wonderfully, she answered, smiling. I hope soon you'll be able to get up again. I feel as well as possible. In another fortnight, we can go to the seaside. Each knew that the other hid the real thought but neither had the heart to put aside the false hopes with which they had so long tried to reassure themselves. Yet to Bella, the strain was growing unendurable, and she besought Miss Lay to come and stay with them. Her father was grown so fond of Herbert that she dared not tell him the truth, and desired Miss Lay to distract his attention. She could not, unaided, continue much longer her own cheerfulness, and only the presence of someone else might make it possible to preserve a certain sober hilarity. Miss Lay consented, and forthwith arrived, but perceiving that it was her part to add some gaiety to that last act of life, she felt it a little gruesome. 
It was as though she were invited to some grim festival to watch the poor boy die. However, with unusual energy, she exerted herself to amuse the dean, and having an idea that her powers of conversation were not altogether contemptible, took pains to be at her best. It did Herbert infinite good to hear her talk with the old man, bantering him gently, playing about his words with the agility of a light-winged butterfly, propounding hazardous theories which she defended with all possible ingenuity. The dean took pleasure in the contest and opposed her with all the resources of his learning and his common sense. With questions apparently guileless, he strove to lure her to self-contradiction, but when he managed this, it profited him little, for she would extricate herself with a verbal quip, a prance, a flourish, and a caper, or else since the only importance to lay in the aesthetic value of a phrase assert her utter indifference to the matter of the argument. To prove a commonplace, she would utter paradox after paradox, to make the fantastic obvious, would argue with staid logic of Euclid. Man has four passions, she said, love, power, food, and rhetoric. But rhetoric is the only one that is proof against satiety, ennui, and dyspepsia. A fortnight passed, and one morning, Herbert Field, alone with Bella, had another attack of hemorrhage, so that for a while she thought him dying. He fainted from exhaustion, and in terror she sent for the local doctor. Presently he was brought around to consciousness, but it was obvious that the end had come. From this final attack he could never rally, yet it seemed impossible that human skill could have no further power. Surely there must be some last desperate remedy for which the moment was now at hand, and Bella asked Miss Lay whether Frank might be sent for. Anyhow, we shall never trouble him again, she said. You don't know Frank, answered Miss Lay. Of course he'll come at once. A telegram was dispatched, and within four hours Frank arrived, only to see that Herbert's condition was hopeless. He hovered between life and death, kept alive by constant stimulants, and they could do nothing but sit and wait. But Bella repeated to her father, from whom, so far as possible, she had hidden her husband's desperate state, that the boy had scarcely outlast the night. He looked down for a moment, then turned to Frank. Is he strong enough for me to administer the holy sacrament? Does he want it? I think so. I've talked to him before, and he told me that he wished to take it before he died. Very well. Bella went to prepare her husband, and the dean assumed the garments of his office. Frank also went into the bedroom to be at hand if needed, and stood by the window apart from those three who performed the sacred mystery. It seemed to him as though the dean were invested strangely with a greater, more benignant dignity. A certain majesty had descended upon the minister of God, and while he read the prayers a light shone on his face, like that on the face of a pictured saint. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that whoreth my Lord, he that heareth my word, and believeth on him that sent me, hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Bella knelt at the bedside in Herbert Field, emaciated and extraordinarily weak, his somber eyes shining unnaturally from his white and wasted face, listened attentively. There was no fear now, but only resignation and hope. It could be seen that with all his heart he believed those promises of life everlasting and of pardon for sins past, and Frank, storm-tossed on the sea of doubt, envied that undisturbed assurance. The body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for thee, preserve thy body and soul into everlasting life. Take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for thee, and feed on him and thy heart by faith and thanksgiving. The dying man took the bread and wine, 
which should mystically prepare the Christian soul for her journey to the life beyond. And they seemed to give a peace ineffable. The tortured body was marvelously eased, and a new serenity descended upon the mind. The dean read the last solemn lines of the service, and rising from his knees, kissed the boy's forehead. Herbert was too weak to speak, but the faintest shadow of a smile crossed his lips. Presently, he dozed quietly. It was late in the afternoon now, and Frank suggested that he should take the dean into the fresh air. There is no immediate danger, is there? asked the old man. I don't think so. He will probably live till the morning. They went out from the deanery garden into the precincts. There was a large patch of grain upon which the boys of Regis School played cricket at nets. But they were away for the holidays, and only the cawing rooks, flying heavily about the elm trees, disturbed the stillness. At one side was the cathedral, adorably gray in the rosy lights of evening, and the stately magnificence of the central tower rose towards heaven like a strong man's ideal turned to stone. All round were the houses of cannons. The day had been hot and cloudless, but now a very light breeze fanned the cheeks of those two slowly sauntering. It was a spot which breathed a peace so exquisite that Frank wished dreamily his life had been cast in such pleasant quarters. Neither spoke, but they walked till the setting sun warned them that it grew late. When they returned to the house, Miss Lay said that Herbert was awake, asking for the dean. She proposed that they should eat something and then go to his room. He seemed slightly better, so that she asked Frank if any hope remained. None. It can only be a question of a few hours more or less. When they went into the bedroom, Herbert greeted them with a smile, for his mind, at the end, seemed to regain a greater lucidity. Bella turned to them. Father, Herbert would like you to read to him. I was going to suggest it, answered the dean. The night was fallen, and all the stars shone out with a vehement splendor. Through the casements, wide open, entered the fresh odors of the garden, suave and unwearied. Frank sat in a window, his face in shadow, so that none could see, and watched the lad lying so still that one might have thought him dead already. Then Bella so arranged the lamp that the dean might be able to read and when he sat down, the light fell on his face wonderfully, and it seemed transparent as alabaster. What shall I read, Herbert? I don't mind, the boy whispered. The dean took the Bible, which lay at his hand, and thoughtfully turned the pages, but a strange idea came to him, and he put it down. The perfume of the night, of the leaves and of the roses, the savor of the dew, filled that room with a subtle delicacy, as though some light spirit of a poet's fancy had taken possession of it, and by instinct, he felt that the boy, who through life had loved so passionately the world's sensuous beauty, must desire other words than those of Hebrew prophets. His great love and sympathy lifted him from the common level of his calling to a plane of higher charity, and knowledge came what reading would give Herbert the most delectable comfort. Bending forward, he whispered to Bella, who gave a look of utter astonishment, but nonetheless rose to do his bidding. She brought him a small book, bound in blue cloth, and slowly he began to read. Courting Amaryllis, with song I go, while my she-goats feed on the hill, and Tyderus herds them. Ah, Tyderus, my dearly beloved, feed thou the goats, and to the well-side lead them, Tyderus. Miss Lay looked up with amazement, and even at that moment could not suppress an inward ironical laughter, for she recognized an ideal of Theocritus very gravely dwelling on the pictures called up to his mind, stored with classical learning. The good dean read through the charming dialogue recounting precisely, with elaborate simplicity, of a decadent age, the amours of Sicilian shepherds, 
Herbert listened with quiet satisfaction, a happy smile set lightly on his pallid lips, and he too, his imagination curiously quickened by approaching death, saw the shady groves and babbling streams of Sicily, heard the piping of lovelorn goat herds, the coy responses of fair maids refusing the kisses so sweet to give only the surrender at length might be the more complete. Even in the translation, a breath of pure poetry was there and the spirit was preserved of a life consciously free from the artifice of civilization, wherein sunshine and shade, spring and summer, the perfume of flowers offered satisfying delights. The dean finished and closed the book, and silence fell upon them all, and they sat through the night. The words whereto they had listened seemed to have left them with a singular tranquility, and that all the stress of passion of the world were banished, and even Bella, though her husband lay a-dying, there came a strange sense of gratitude for the fullness and the beauty of life. The hours passed, marked by the deep-tongued chiming of the cathedral bells. Every quarter they pealed their warning, ominous, yet not terrifying, and to all it seemed that the parting soul waited only for the day to take her flight. The silence was extraordinary, more lovely than sweet music. It seemed a living thing that filled the chamber of death with peace unspeakable and the night was dark, for the stars now were vanished before the full moon. But the goddess spared the room her frigid brilliancy and left the garden to neighbors. No breath of wind touched the trees, and not a rustle of leaves disturbed the stilly calm. The muteness of the sleeping town seemed all about them, so profound that one felt some spirit had descended thereon, throwing over all things to emphasize the wakefulness of those who watched a shroud of death. Then a sound stole through the air so gradual and delicate, a sound that none could tell how it began. One might have thought it borne miraculously a very close silence. It was a silvery, tenuous note that traveled through the stillness of light, through air, and all at once, with a suddenness that startled, broke into passionate, vehement song. It was the nightingale. The placid night rang like a sounding board, and each breath of air took up the tremulous magic. The bird sang in a hawthorn tree below the window, and its rapture sang through the garden, rang in the large room to the ears of the dying youth. He started from his sleep, and it seemed as though he were called back from death. None stirred, all fascinated and imprisoned by that miracle of song, passion and anguish and exaltation, rising and falling in perpetual harmony. Sometimes the beauty was hardly sufferable, as though was reached at length with heart's limit of endurance so that one could have cried out with the sorrow of it. The music was poured upon the listening ear, trembling and throbbing with pain, joyous, triumphant, and conscious of might. It hesitated like a lover who knows that his love is hopeless. It was like the voice of a dying child lamenting the loveliness it would never know. It was the mocking laughter of a courtesan for whose sake a man has died. It wept and prayed and gloried in the joy of living. It was all sweetness and tenderness offering pardon from sins past, and charity and peace, the rest that ever endures. It exalted in the sweet sense of the earth, the multicolored flowers, the gentle airs, the dew, and the white beam of the moon. Inhuman, ecstatic, defiant, the nightingale warbled, drunk with the beauty that issued from his throat. To Herbert, curiously alert, all his senses gathered to one last effort of appreciation. It recalled the land which he had never seen. Hellas, Hellas with its olive gardens, its purling streams, its gray rocks, all rosy in the setting sun, and its sacred groves, its blithe airs, and its sonorous speech, passed through his mind Philomel chanting, 
forever her distress. And Pan, the happy shepherd, and the fawns and the flying nymphs, all the lovely things whereof he had read and dreamed appeared before him in one last passionate vision of a glory that was long since set. At the moment he was happy to die, for the world had given him much, and he had been spared the delusion of old age. But to Frank the nightingale sang of other things, of the birth which follows ever on the heel of death, of life ever new and desirable, of the wonder of the teeming earth and the endless cycle of events. Men came and went, and the world turned on. The individual was not, but the race continued its blind journey toward the greater nothingness. The trees shed their leaves, and the flowers dropped and withered, but the spring brought new buds. Hopes were dead before the desired came about. Love perished, the love that seemed immortal. One thing succeeded another relentlessly, and the universe was ever fresh and wonderful. He too was thankful for his life. And then, suddenly, in the very midst of his song, when he seemed to gather his heart for a final burst of infinite melody, the nightingale ceased, and through all the garden passed a shudder, as though the trees and the flowers and the taciturn birds of the day were distraught because they awoke suddenly to common life. For an instant, the night quivered still with the memory of those heavenly notes, and then, more profoundly, the silence returned. Herbert gave a low sob, and Bella went to him quickly. She bent down to hear what he said. I'm so glad, he whispered. I'm so glad. Again the cathedral bells rang out, and the watchers counted the deliberate striking of the hour. They sat in silence, and then the darkness was insensibly diminished. And yet there was no light, but they felt the dawn was at hand. A chilliness came into the room, the greater cold of the departing night and the velvet obscurity took on a subtle hue of amethyst. A faint sound came from the bed, and the dean went over and listened. The end was very nearly come. He knelt down, and in a low voice began to repeat the prayers for the dying. O oh, Almighty God, with whom do live the spirits of great men made perfect, after they are delivered from their earthly prisons, we humbly commend the soul of this thy servant, our dear brother, into thy hands. Most humbly beseeching thee that it may be precious into thy sight. Wash it, we pray, thee in thy blood of that immaculate lamb that was slain to take away the sins in the world, that whatsoever defilements it may have contracted in the midst of this miserable world, through the lusts of the flesh and the vials of Satan, being purged and done away, it may be presented pure and without spot before thee. Miss Lay stood up and touched Frank's arm. Come, she whispered. You and I can do no more good. Let us leave them. He rose silently and followed her. They stole very gently from the room. I want to walk in the garden, she said, her voice trembling. But once in the open air, her nerves taut till then by a great effort of will, gave way on a sudden, and the strong, collected woman burst into a flood of tears. Sinking on a bench, she hid her face and wept uncontrollably. Oh, it's too awful, she cried. It seems so horribly stupid that people should ever die. Frank looked at her gravely, and in a reflective fashion, filled his pipe. I'm afraid you're rather upset. You'd better let me write you out a little prescription in the morning. Don't be a driveling idiot, she cried. What do you think I want, your foolish brombides? He did not answer, but deliberately lit his pipe. And though Miss Lane knew it not, his words had the calming effect he foresaw. She brushed away the tears and took his arm. They walked up and down the lawn slowly, but Miss Lay, Unused to give way to her emotions, was shaken still, 
and he felt her trembling. It's just at such times as these that you and I are so utterly helpless. When people's hearts are breaking for a word of consolation, when they're sick and with fear because of the unknown, we can only shrug our shoulders and tell them that we know nothing. It's too awful to think that we shall never see again those that we have loved so deeply. It's too awful to think that nothing awaits us but cold extinction. I try to put death from my thoughts. I wish never to think of it, but it's hateful, hateful. Each year I grow older, I'm more passionately attached to life. After all, even if the beliefs of men are childish and untrue, isn't it better to keep them? Surely superstition is a small price to pay for that wonderful support of the last hour. When all else fades to insignificance, how can people have the heart to rob the simple-minded of that great comfort? But don't you think most of us would give our very souls to believe? But of course we need it, and sometimes so intensely that we can hardly help praying to a God we know is not there. It's very hard to stand alone and look forward without hope. They wandered still, and the birds began to sing blithely. Nature awoke from her sleep, slowly, with languid movements. The night was gone, and yet the day was not come. The trees and the flowers stood out with a certain ghostly dimness, and the air in those first moments of dawn was fresh and keen. All things were swathed in a strange violet light that seemed to give new contours and new hues. There was a curious self-consciousness about the morning, and the leaves rustled like animate beings, and the sky was very pale, cloudless, gray, and amethystine. And then suddenly a ray of yellow light shot right across it, and the sun rose. Do you know, said Frank, it seems to me that just as there is an instinct for life, there must be an instinct for death also. Some very old persons, here and there, long for the release, just as the majority long for existence. Perhaps in the future this will be more common, and just as certain insects, having done their life's work, die willingly, without regret, from their sheer cessation of the wish to live, so it may happen that men too will develop some such feeling, and then death will have no terrors, for we shall come to it as joyfully as after a hard day we go to our sleep. And meanwhile, asked Miss Lay, with a painful smile, meanwhile, we must have courage. In our sane moments we devise a certain scheme of life, and we must keep to it in our hour of trouble. I will try to live my life, so that when the end comes I can look back without regret, and forward without fear. But now the sun flooded the garden with its magnificence, and there was a beauty in the morning that told more eloquently than human words the good lesson that life is to the living and the world is full of joy. Still the birds sang their merry songs, throstle and merle, and finch and twittering sparrow, and the flowers defiant squandered their perfume. There were roses everywhere, and side by side were the buds and the full-blown blossoms and the dead, drooping splendors of yesterday. The great old trees of the deanery garden were fresh and verdant as though they had not bloomed and faded for a hundred years. The very air was jowned and gay. It was delight, merely to stand still and breathe. But while they walked, Miss Lay gave a cry, and leaving Frank's arm, stepped forward, for Bella was seated on a bench under a tree, with the sun shining full on her face. She stared in front of her with wide open eyes, unblinding by the brilliance, and the lines of care were suddenly gone from her face. Her expression was radiant, so that for a moment she was a beautiful woman. Bella, what is it? cried Miss Lay. Bella! She lowered her eyes and passed her hand over them. For now they were dazzled with shining gold, an ecstatic smile broke upon her lips. He died when the sun came into the room. A bridge of gold was set for him, and he passed painlessly into the open. Oh, my poor child. 
Bella shook her head and smiled again. I'm not sorry. I'm glad that his suffering is over. He died so gently that at first I didn't know it. I could hardly believe he was not asleep. I told father, and then I saw a lovely butterfly, a golden butterfly such as I've never seen before, hover slowly about the room. I couldn't help looking at it, for it seemed to know its way, and then it came into the sunbeam and floated out along it, floated into the blue sky, and then I lost it. A week later, Miss Lay was in London, where she meant to stay through August, partly because it bored her to decide where to spend the holiday season, partly because Mrs. Barlow Bassett had been forced to go to a private hospital for an operation, but still more because Frank's presence gave her the certainty that she would have someone to talk to whenever she liked. That month vastly amused her, for London gained then somewhat the air of a foreign capital, and since few of her acquaintances remained, she felt free to do whatever she chose without risk of being thought willfully eccentric. Miss Lay dined with Frank in shabby little restaurants in Soho, where neither the linen nor the frequenters were of a spotless character, but it entertained her much to watch bearded Frenchmen languishing away from their native land and to overhear the voluble confidence of ladies whose position in society were scarcely acknowledged. They went together to music halls over the river or drove on the tops of buses and discussed interminably the weather and eternity, the meaning of life, the foibles of their friends, Shakespeare and the Bilharzia Hamatobi. Miss Ley had left Bella and the dean at Tarkenbury. The widow never for a moment lost her grave serenity. She attended the burying of her husband with dry eyes, absently, as though it were a formal ceremony that had no particular meaning to her, and the dean, who could not understand her point of view, was dismayed, for he was broken down with grief, and it was his daughter who sought to console him. She repeated that Herbert was there among them now, and the furniture of the house, the roses of the garden, the blue of the sky, gained a curious significance, since he seemed to be in all things partaking of their comfortable beauty and adding to theirs a more subtle loveliness. Soon, Miss Lay received from her friend a letter, enclosing one from Herbert, scribbled in pencil, but a few days before his death. She said, This is apparently for you, and though it is the last thing he ever wrote, I feel that you should have it. It seems to refer to a conversation that you had with him, and I am glad to have found it. My father keeps well, and I also. Sometimes, I scarcely realize that Herbert is dead. He seems so near to me. I thought I could not live without him, but I am singularly content and I know that soon we shall be united, and then, forever. The letter was as follows. Dear Miss Lay, you wanted to ask me a question the other day, and were afraid in case you pained me, but I guessed it, and would have answered very willingly. Did you not wish to know whether, notwithstanding poverty and illness and frustrated hopes and the prospect of death, I was glad to have lived? Yes, notwithstanding everything, except that I must leave Bella. I am not sorry to die for I know at last, well enough, that I should never have been a great poet, and Bella will join me soon. I have loved the world passionately, and I thank God for all the beautiful things I have seen. I thank God for the green meadows round Turkenberry, and the elm trees, and the gray monotonous sea. I thank Ellen for the loveliness of the cathedral on rainy afternoons in winter, and for the jeweled glass of its pointed windows, and for the great clouds that sway across the sky. I thank God for the scented flowers and the caroling birds, and for the sunshine and the spring breezes, and the people who have loved me. Oh yes, I am glad to have lived, and if I had to go through all it again, with the sorrows and the disappointments and the sickness, I would take it willingly. For to me, at least the delight of life had been greater than the pain. I am very ready to pay the price, 
and I would wish to die with a prayer of thanksgiving on my lips. The letter broke off thus abruptly, as though he had meant to say much more but wanted opportunity. Miss Lay read the letter to Frank when next he came. Do you notice, she asked, that every one of the things he speaks of appeals to the senses, yet the only point upon which philosophers and divines agree is that this is the lower part of us and must be resolutely curbed. They put the intellect on an altogether higher plane. They lie in their throats, and you can prove that really they believe nothing of the kind by comparing the concern with which they treat their stomachs and the negligence with which they use their minds. To make their food digestible, nourishing, and wholesome, enormous trouble is taken, but they will stuff into their heads any garbage they come across. When you contrast the heedlessness with which they choose the, the books from Moody's and the care with which they order their dinner, you can be sure, whatever their protestations, that they lay vastly more store on their bellies than on their intellects. I rather wish I'd said that, murmured Miss Lay, reflectively. I have no doubt you will, he returned. End of section 23